0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero, all engine runner, liftoff. Hey space enthusiasts, in this episode we'll talk about predicting extreme weather. We scheduled this episode recording a while ago, and it actually was not the plan to make it coincide with Hurricane Ian, but there you go. I guess it's timely. I also hope that all of you who are on Ian's path are or stay safe and sound. My guest today is Dan Harkins, the COO of Tropical Weather Analytics, and he'll tell us all about extreme weather and how their proposed satellite constellation may help us predict it. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by NanoAvionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University isu offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide check them out at isunet.edu and just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves if you enjoy the podcast please leave us a five star rating on your favorite podcast platform such as apple or spotify if you want us help expand our work you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast and we'll also put that link in the episode notes and lastly you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space hey space enthusiasts welcome back it's time for another episode of the space business podcast and it is a business episode which means we're interviewing an executive from a space company today i'm very happy to welcome dan harkins who is the ceo of tropical weather analytics welcome dan
1: Thanks for having me on Raphael. It's great to be here. Great to talk about uh, what we're doing.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm actually very interested in, in talking about weather. It's something we should have done already. We've done to some extent in some other episodes, but never really on a sort of you know pure play basis. If that that makes sense. So, Dan, why don't you start off giving us the the elevator pitch on tropical weather analytics, please?
1: Oh, it's uh, it's a long history, but uh, we're commercializing a technology. So uh, basically, our vision uh, for this mission is to leverage about $100 million worth of NASA funding uh, into providing earlier, more accurate hurricane forecasts, but also by collecting polar wind data and other areas that just aren't covered by wind measurements, we can improve all weather forecasts. So, uh, you know, our mission is just to, to save lives and save billions of dollars worth of damage because of climate change, um, even if we, you know, stop the missions. Right now, we still have the problems of what's happening at the moment, and you're even seeing it right now. There are several hurricanes going. Um, there's just not enough assets to predict. Uh, so, we just need to improve that picture and have more observational capability. And that's what we're trying to bring.
0: Yeah, so it's funny you, you mentioned NASA. I'm going to ask you about it, 100 million in, in a minute as well. But, but NASA, of course, is trying to currently still launch Artemis 1. And I think that has currently been delayed um, because of uncertainties about the weather. And it seems to be going kind of back and forth. So, it seems like even NASA doesn't have sort of a perfect um, weather uh, uh, predictive capability.
1: Well, in, in fact, not just uh, Artemis, but uh, they launched um, hurricane satellites, CubeSat. Uh, not too long ago, and unfortunately those failed. Those were using something very different than what we use. We are not sensor-based. Um, ours is based on two satellites, just an off-the-shelf space camera, and it's all in the processing of how we get the images, collect the images, and then it's our algorithms
0: and our model of hurricanes and um, vertical and horizontal winds. Okay, so let's take a step back. When we're talking about forecasting, I guess there's there's obviously different timeframes, right? And so NASA, when I was joking about Artemis right now, that seemed to be like a timeframe of like, you know, a few days out. Where there was a lot of uncertainty, what what kind of what what's like state of the art accuracy and what timeframes at the moment?
1: Well, right now it's up to the minute, but the accuracy is not all that great. Um, I mean, you can you can get pretty good with hyperlocal forecast. Um, There are there are several commercial weather companies and private weather. I mean, not private weather, but uh, government funded weather services mm-hmm. that can provide that kind of um, granular resolution. But the only way to actually improve that, you can improve it through algorithms and modeling because there's private weather companies that do that. Um, they're all different, obviously. They don't all have the same models, but you're only as good as the information that you can collect. And right mm-hmm. now the big key piece missing is horizontal and vertical winds all across the globe at high resolution. And that's what we'll be bringing. We, we, we call it 3D winds, um, it's actually more than 40 because of time. Um, but th- that's really one component that's missing because wind actually drives a lot of the weather patterns. Um, you know, as, as far as the accuracy of the forecast. So right now you might have three, two days, uh, accuracy. Um, we, we think we can improve that by about 30 to 40% with our wind data.
0: And just to ask a general stupid question about this, I mean, isn't this sort of like, um, you know, weather forecasting and including hurricane forecasting? I seem to remember a long time ago, I, I, I read a book about um, chaos theory and the origins of chaos theory. And I think there was a guy at MIT, what was his name? Lawrence, I think. And he basically discovered chaos theory because he's trying to predict the weather <laughs> and found out that like very small um, changes in initial conditions can make a huge difference. So so have we just gotten much better? I think this was in the 60s. Have we just gotten much better? Do we have better data, better algorithms, a bit of both?
1: There's certainly better everything. Um, There there are more assets, whether it's satellites, um, weather stations on the ground. Uh, We've definitely gotten better since the first weather satellites have gone up. And the GOES satellites, which most people do rely on, that NOAA runs and NASA, um, those GOES weather satellites are, are really the bedrock of the weather forecast, and they're always improving that constellation. Uh, they just launched one um, maybe about a year and a half ago, the, the latest one, but th- those will be up uh, more of those. But having said that, the GOES are geostationary satellites. We are going to be in LEO, uh, the low-Earth or- orbit, and in a polar orbit. So one area that's not covered, and you could probably pretty much Google it right now, is if you wanted to see the North Pole and South Pole uh, from satellite images, you really wouldn't get all that much in return. You could pretty much mm-hmm. see everywhere else on Earth, but not there. So the wind data is just not measured at these poles. And uh, the polar vortex is basically like a hurricane that never goes away that's happening at the North. Um, sometimes that splits. Sometimes it becomes unstable. It hits the jet streams, and then extremely extreme events occur, like the Texas freeze. For instance, was one where the polar vortex um, went really far down south, and Texas froze over. It was billions of dollars. Almost seven hundred, seven hundred people died. Um, The New York flooding was kind of the trifecta of what we measure. Uh, It was the polar vortex hitting the jet stream, the jet stream supercharging a hurricane, and then dumping all that rain. And uh, that was seen coming, but not to the accuracy and leveling, uh, you know, making the cone of uncertainty a little bit smaller so that you can really pinpoint. Because the first thing that I think people uh, when I talk to is well hey how do you sell weather but B you can't do anything about weather so weather's just going to happen and you just have to accept it. but there's a lot of things that can be done uh, mm, sure. even, even a 12 hour uh, notice according to a lot of studies is you know you could save about 30 percent of the damage cost I mean you can um, harden the infrastructure, you can evacuate people more reliably. Uh, I mean certainly that's one big problem is it just human nature? If the weather is wrong, they're more reluctant to leave the next time uh, if if the forecast is wrong to evacuate. So those kinds of things of locking down, um, you know, getting that accuracy and reliability that people can trust is going to be huge in the future.
0: So just taking a step back, you've mentioned polar vortex there a few times, and so we're a very non-technical podcast. Can you just give us sort of quick explanation of what a polar vortex is and what its relevance is?
1: The polar vortex is basically like a hurricane at the pole, at the North Pole. Um, It's a swirling mass of wind uh, that it's it's almost always there, but it drives a lot of global climate patterns um, and weather patterns so uh, when this cold air either splits or disrupts it goes into the jet stream uh, and this then it's really transferred to around the globe Um, so so what happens at the poles really drives most weather patterns to to a degree.
0: Okay so is is that is that sort of a constant hurricane you said is that just simply because of the earth's rotation? Yeah exactly. So this seems to be pretty relevant and why has nobody sort of done this before you think
1: uh, it took a long time to get here uh you know our, our mission started out as project ramos uh way back in i think 2000 1999 range and those were extremely large satellites you know in the, in the 2000 kilogram range uh in subsequent times obviously the small satellite market has emerged other satellites actually um went up that got a temperature measurement that we need which we now get from for free from that satellite so our satellites got smaller and smaller and so as we Transition from the, the company at the time was called Visidyne, before we became Tropical Weather Analytics. Um, as we were making that transition from that weather satellite, um, NOAA and NASA and the Department of Defense came along and started funding um, the hurricane work. And those were just small little bits that they needed um, for 3D wind measurements mm-hmm. uh, that we could improve upon. And those are small things that just over time, about 10 years um, that they needed to improve their measurements. And then when the modeling that we had produced um, proved to be extremely effective, NASA then funded a mission which they ran on their own. Uh, and that was the Simons program. And that was just looking at tropical cyclones and that ran about five years, almost six years, uh, just to prove our technique. And then at that point, uh, the, the research part was over, and we needed to commercialize. And we just, we at that time, we're just focused on hurricanes. Uh, our, our sole thing was, well, we're going to provide earlier, more accurate hurricane prediction. Uh, we think twelve hours. We had some case studies up on our website. If anybody would be interested. But as soon as we started talking to meteorologists, because we were all um, imaging guys and space guys, uh, we didn't know much about the meteorology side of things. That's where uh, NOAA and NASA came in. They they knew how to apply the data that we were producing. uh, So when we started talking with the meteorologists in the community, they basically told us that It's really, you know, hurricanes don't happen all that often, Uh, you know, even though right now they're happening a a lot uh, this specific week. Uh, But they are fairly rare, you know, 20 to 25 a year. But but what they told us was nobody's measuring the polar vortex, the polar winds. um, If you just applied your model to that, that would improve the general weather forecast, and that would be extremely more valuable than anything you can do with hurricanes.
0: Okay. So what you guys are bringing to the table, I guess let's split this up. So there's obviously an analytics part, but let, let's leave that to one side. Like if you start with sort of raw data, what you guys are bringing to the table that's new, if I understand it correctly, is basically more coverage of the polar vortex than has been done historically, and and also this um, the, the, the 3D element of vertical vents. Is that it?
1: Yeah, really, the vertical winds is one of the biggest things. Um, The the coverage, not just at the poles, but over the open oceans, Um, there there are just a lot of places that are actually uncovered by weather stations and traditional weather satellites. So we know that across all altitudes in 3D, we'll be able to map these winds uh, with high accuracy and that can be fed into weather models. So what we do is we provide two well, three kinds of things. Uh, the first thing that we provide is the big data products that meteorologists would then use. So this would be 3D images of the actual cloud feature. So we measure clouds. So mm-hmm. any, any sort of cloud feature doesn't necessarily have to be a hurricane. Um, even wildfires, for instance, we could actually apply our model to wildfires. So we take these images. And with those images, there is also a listing a uh, numerical data within these images of the wind velocities across all altitudes and what axis these winds are in so uh, there's only about 300 meteorologists in the whole world that could actually take this data put it into a model and produce a forecast mm. so that that's our, our big data product which would be a, a large you know monthly subscription for that they could use and, and from there we know that the hurricane forecast, the U.S. is really the only country that has a fleet of hurricane hunter aircraft, so we could bring hurricane forecasts to, there's 20 countries that are vulnerable to hurricanes, so we could actually bring an end-to-end solution for them that would be similar to the hurricane hunter observations. Uh, the big difference between us and the hurricane hunters, the hurricane hunters, obviously, they fly through the storm, um, so they get more accurate measurements uh, dropping those songs. However, they don't measure the whole entire storm. and They can't do it as frequently as satellites can. So we'll we'll be complementary and not instead of in the US, but in other places, Japan, India, Australia, uh, the Philippines, they could take our hurricane data, and that would essentially act like hurricane hunter aircraft for them um, at a fraction of the cost. The the fleet of hurricane hunters costs about $250 million per year just Mm. to maintain. You know, we can sell our hurricane data for $10, $15 million per year. Um, And that may seem pricey, but for the amount of damage that can be done and what can be saved, it's it's actually quite a bargain and you're not paying for the planes. So it's a a big deal there. And then the last thing that we do is we want to package that data so that users can actually uh, do something with it, the everyday person. So imagine that you're a farmer or a stock trader. You have insurance companies. This data can be applied and they won't know where the wind data came from. All they know is that they have improved Weather forecast, and
0: and they don't care where it comes from, (laughs) right? Exactly.
1: All they want is actionable weather intelligence that they can use to uh, make decisions and improve their business. So, you know, whether that's like a FedEx or Amazon or UPS. For instance, they could really optimize their shipping routes, both ground, sea, and air, um, you know, just by having this improved forecast and alerts that come directly to drivers, especially wind is one of the bigger ones, uh, certainly on the seas, cargo loss, and just um, improving routes that that can be done as far as maritime cargo goes and keeping track of these ships a little bit better uh, with the hyperlocal weather forecast. Um, Because oddly enough, the the size of these ships, you know, the weather is actually, it's almost different from one end of the ship to the other in some cases
0: yeah. just um take a step back going to the vertical vents because i find this fascinating I mean, w- without obviously giving away any anything that maybe a uh, secret sauce or, or, or protects it or a trade secret, um, can you give us some insight of how we should think about what kind of sensors are you using to to measure vertical vents?
1: Yeah, I think that's the uh, most interesting
0: aspect uh, of this project. And,
1: and one of the things that drew me to it was that it wasn't about commissioning a new sensor and, you know, being years... Because space always takes a long time. It's always a lot more expensive than you think it's going to be. Things might fail. So what I really loved about this mission when it first uh, came my way was this was basically an off-the-shelf satellite bus that could be purchased. This was basically an off-the-shelf camera that could be purchased. The, The way the winds are actually calculated is by using a pair of satellites focused on specific cloud feature, um, taking measurements of the cloud feature from that angle, you are able to generate a 3D cloud model. You know, now we're talking different kind of cloud, right? But a 3D point cloud um, of the cloud, (laughs) is that's the best way to say it. Um, And and from there, what you have is uh, not just these amazing images that show um, the detail of the features in 3D, But there's a numerical model underlying all of that in the cloud features, and that's done through uh, the algorithms that have been developed and the modeling that's been developed to calculate that vertical wind and even the horizontal wind. Uh,
0: Okay, okay. I think I got you. So it's not like you're measuring wind directly, you're measuring features, and then uh, through experience, you can basically infer that there are winds going on. Is that it?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so very different from uh, any, any type of radar, and maybe the closest satellite, although it, it's it's sensor based, um, is the Aolus. Um, e- ESA's mission, which um, has, has outlived, it, it's actually, it was a proof of concept, it's outlived its mission life, but it's still going. That's one that's returning wind data from the poles, um, not quite at the size and not at the resolution that we will provide, um, but that might be the closest analog to what, we've do, what we're what we doing.
0: Oh, wh- while you're mentioning ESA before I forget it. So I think there's something upcoming, or there's supposed to be something upcoming soon. I mean, as you mentioned, space timeframes are always a bit uncertain. Uh, that's called the ASAR. Arctic weather satellite. And since we were talking so much about under coverage of the poles, is that something that's anywhere remotely relevant to what you're doing?
1: Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Um, that will be very similar. It, it's, again, using a different method. So we would say that it's going to be complementary, not competitive to what we're yeah. doing. Um, and especially when it comes to weather. Um, the more data points, the more collection you can get, the more yeah. observations, the better the weather is going to be uh, as far as forecasting.
0: If you take that philosophy, does that not mean that sort of like, okay, ideally, a model should combine all of these different sources like Acer Arctic Weather Satellite, your source um, to produce these models. But um, just so are you guys proposing to do the models yourselves in-house as well? Or would you leave that to other people? Because there's established weather forecasting um, companies like um, Tomorrow.io and people like that, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. In fact, we have a letter of interest with Tomorrow.io, and that's not a component that we want to deliver because other other people have their models and could do it much better. That goes back to the, you know, there's 300,000 meteorologists in the world, Uh, you know, from then I'd say we're we're really, there's a few of those even have the capability to, um, you know, run independent models or make their own. Uh, So there are great models that exist already and and it's it's fun. They kind of compete with each other, maybe the most interesting thing that I found out, in the last year is uh, with ESA's uh, Aeolus going offline at a certain point or the prediction that it will. Uh, I got really interested to talk to meteorologists. You know, this wind data is is proven to be powerful and really improves the weather forecast. What are you going to do when it's gone? And most of them just were pretty much um, not using that data in, in their prediction I I found that kind of fascinating and odd, but I think, you know, that's exactly you hit upon the point of shouldn't we collect all these things and and have them in one place that that would be the best, uh, I think. But there are also independent assets that private companies have, whether that's weather stations on the ground. Um, in in their own radar. So to a degree, it's not possible to have everything, but I think this is going to be one of those things that, you know, would over time prove out um, that you would need it if you're going to run a good weather model.
0: Okay. But so as a part of my background is being a trained data scientist as well. So the fact that those guys said they're not using it, does that not um, worry you? Because I mean, that's like, why are they not using it? Do you think that's a issue that they are not educated, have not been educated about the relevance, or they think it may actually not be relevant, which obviously would be much, much worse?
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. It would be, it'd be terrible for us if it wasn't relevant. I, I think uh, I'm not exactly sure. I haven't gotten to the bottom of why they would not, because to me, I considered some of the ESA work uh, to be landmark. Changing Everything that we might know because of, you know, they did study of with the wind measurements and without and showed a market improvement of their weather forecast. So I thought, you know, everybody would adopt this. And that could be I've heard everything from maybe a timing issue of when you can get the data, you know how they release the data, it's not as open as a lot of the other satellites. Um, Is my understanding. So, you know, I was surprised that more people were not using it, though, that I was talking to. Um, But I think that that would definitely change with us in in two ways is that I do think that in general, I think there's always a reluctance in space um, for early adopters, even how powerful the data is, how much it can help businesses, the cost of doing nothing and doing what you already doing. Um, makes people just kind of reluctant to actually, you know, use this new technology. I I see with imaging companies and SAR companies all the time, I feel like they should have a lot more users than I would ever imagine. Um, And then you see their public reporting and you you just, you're like, why aren't people adopting faster? Uh, This data is so powerful and it's transformative. Um, So I, I think we will definitely have that too. That's why I wanted to make sure that we had a suite of products that was low cost introductory products to the everyday user, like, like a farmer um, or like a stock trader. Yeah. You know, it's just an improved forecast that they can use uh, in their everyday life, but um, you know, getting people to adopt our, our technology, we really have to be out front because weather is consumable. It happens all the time. So that's actually a good thing. So what you can do is make these forecasts and maybe nobody's listening to you at the time that you're forecasting, but after the events, you can show, you know, this is what you could have saved. This is what you could have prevented. This is how this could have helped you, uh, either a business case or, you know, reducing the humanitarian aspect of, of, of weather. And that just happens all the time. So over time, companies are going to see that, oh, you know, we, we can actually uh, save money. We, we can actually make weather work for us. Um, so we really have to, that, that's our a big focus for us is going to have to be proving it as we go as weather changes.
0: Yeah, no. And 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 in fairness, I guess, you know, the more I think about it, and I've been speaking to quite a few AO companies as well, I, I think we're still early on in EO in the sense that on the customer side, there's very often still a lot of education to be done. And then on the side of people who are providing the um, the insights, it's just large parts of EO data are still not very user-friendly, right? It's like you kind of alluded to that, right? Sometimes the formats are weird. You have to do a lot of data fusion and wrangling and all of that. Maybe the explanation is as simple as that, but it hasn't been used more.
1: I I think for sure. And I think, um, you know, the one aspect that is advantageous to us um, is that weather just happens to so many industries. Um, And it's so understandable. And again, it's consumable. It happens all the time. It goes, you know, and then it happens again. Um, So you can really make the case a little bit better from a business standpoint or, you know, again, every government, every military relies on weather too. So as you're building up the data of this is what happened, this is what you could have prevented, this is how you could have profited. um, Other companies for Earth observation may not necessarily have that proof you know on a rolling basis that we can provide with weather and that's going to be for every weather company you know that could be tomorrow io for instance we'll do the same thing and that's why i always worry about the, the big data for us is a little bit more interesting because the meteorology community meets a lot. They have their, you know, they're, they're focused and we know where to get them. We know where to talk to them and get in front of them. Um, whereas in earth observation, a lot of other ways, it's kind of like small segments that you have to sort of make your case to all the time. And that's a really heavy sales and marketing and PR lift. Um, I think that's why there's the early adoption isn't, isn't quite there.
0: So you've mentioned agriculture, you've mentioned the military, where do you guys see your Sort of in summary, your key customer segments, and 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 where do you think it's going to start? Well,
1: I think for sure, uh, industries like insurance, we, we we're going to fo- there's 20 industries that are impacted by weather. We really want to try to focus on six that we think we can handle uh, immediately that will will be helpful. Oddly enough, we know we will help the satellite industry. Uh, quite a bit because it costs a lot of money to task these satellites and get them on a schedule Mm. and guess what? Clouds are in the way, you know, whereas we're the exact opposite. Clouds are our friends. Um, We need need clouds to get our wind data. If there aren't any cloud features, we actually, you know, we, we can't measure anything um but thankfully the earth is covered by clouds you know 67 70 percent of the time um, so we'll never run out of clouds but we can help the satellite industry quite a bit by having a better cloud forecast which then means that um, their window of opportunity to get features for their customers can be improved so we, we know we can save them money so that's a big um application for us that i, I think is just going to improve the entire industry And uh, after insurance, stock trading, um, agriculture, uh, certainly maritime shipping is is one of the better applications for for me um, that I see because there's an existing customer base of AIS companies that are providing this service. Um, and having a better weather forecast can help these existing customers. So you plug kind of right into their database of, let's just say, there's probably about eight to twelve million AIS customers, just off the top of my head, I would say, um, provided by different companies. So. You know what differentiates one AS provider from another one could be a more accurate hyperlocal weather forecast that helps their ships, help them with routes, help them not lose cargo. You might remember the Suez Canal incident um, a while back. Uh, that was wind driven uh, to a degree. And also the the weather forecast um, for really seeing the levels of the water um, impact shipping rates, how much you can put on a boat um, and what you can charge customers. So having that like hyperlocal specific forecasting could help these companies a lot. And again, um, they're already buying a service, so it's easier to tap into and show the value that can be added with, uh, you know, this kind of weather service.
0: And what's your what's your go-to market? Is it sort of you guys, I think, um, and, and you can sort of talk about this a little bit, I suppose, I think you guys are planning on flying uh, two test satellites, and then you're obviously going to start producing, I guess, first data. Are you sort of waiting for that, and then you are um, um, commencing your go-to market, or is there something you, you can already do, like using third-party data?
1: We could actually go to market now because we do have weather partners
0: already that already
1: have developed products um, that we would love to sell. Um, but we're, we're focused on understanding those product suites, how we can reach the market, and how we can improve. But in order to do that, because what's the, the differentiator? And I'll say there's three big companies uh, for private weather, and those would be um, IBM's the weather company, DTN, and, and AccuWeather. And soon to be tomorrow, IO, I would say you could add that into the category. Um, so what's the differentiator of how they produce for their customers Um and it's going to be what the better or more reliable weather forecast in the future. That's how they will differentiate. Right now, they're you know when I talk to people, they all think they're very similar, oddly enough. Which to me, you know, that's, that's not so great. So our go-to-market strategy is we can't necessarily sell the existing products from our weather partners yet because there's not mm-hmm. much of a differentiator without our wind data. Um, so it's get our first two satellites into orbit within months, actually weeks. We'll be able to return data products um, that we can actually package and sell, and so we will first go to the experts um, that will use this to to produce value-added data. And that's the meteorology community for us. Yeah, uh, that three hundred thousand that I was talking about earlier, and after that, um, shortly, you know, we're within six months, our, our next go-to-market strategy would be um, picking. One type of app that already exists, um, whether it's the, a farmer app or a stock trading app or one for insurance, um, something that exists already that we can then plug our data into uh, to improve that and then expanding that market.
0: Yeah, um, I forgot to ask you when you were talking about industries before. Um, how about aviation? Is is that relevant to aviation? Oh as well? yeah, I can't believe
1: I haven't talked about aviation. Uh, hugely relevant to aviation for for a bunch of reasons. Uh, the jet streams, uh, number one. Yeah. Uh, The resolution of the jet streams, um, you know, the the way that those are taken, the balloons, I think, go up uh, twice a day from four points, um, and then obviously the planes themselves measure But the resolution that's measured is is on the kilometer scale. The planes in the jet stream fly closer than that. Um, We are at 100 meter plus or minus um, scale. So, uh, you know, uh, the difference between a kilometer of uh, uncertainty versus 100 meters of uncertainty is is much better. So, we're going to have a huge impact on aviation in that way. That would be safer navigation of the jet streams, which You think, well, we're already doing that already, and it's pretty safe, right? Uh, Climate change says no; Uh, it's going to make things a lot worse, a lot more unpredictable uh, moving forward. You know, there's nothing we can do about that, so we got to have something to make that safer. Uh, The other thing is, you know, which I just always love to say is, we open up Santa shortcut, um, flying over the North Pole. Those aviation routes um, are really not um, uh, taken advantage of the way they could be. Uh, They're shorter; they can save a lot of fuel. Um, but they're dangerous at, at the moment because of the polar vortex, uh, because of the conditions there and because yeah. of, the lack of monitoring. You know, there's not many Arctic stations. Um, there aren't any satellites that are getting the wind data or a lot of the uh, weather data. So that's where we would be a, a key component, uh, especially for the military. That would be a big deal to open up, Santa shortcut. Uh, so aviation will be will be one of our key markets for sure.
0: Yes, I'm fascinated. When you're talking about the jet stream, you mentioned the weather balloons. I mean, is that really what's happening at the moment in some sort of like um, globally or at least transatlantic and a coordinated uh, regular release of balloons? Uh,
1: yes, for the most part for the um, the, the major weather stations uh, there are four points and they all report to each other. I believe it's in the mornings and later afternoon but there are weather balloons released all over the, all over the world like twice a day I think at, at certain points. Um, we actually have a nice little map and graphic of all those weather balloons. Hopefully it's made it to our website but it gets out on social quite a bit. Uh, what you notice is that there's just a lot of uncovered uh, territory uh, yeah. of, of the winds. Um, obviously the weather balloons getting more than that by the way. But you know, so I'm not trying to say that weather balloons are useless, but they're limited in range of where they where they fly and they're limited in altitude. Um so we're going to be covering uh adding an area of coverage to that. Like I said, it, it's not competitive. It's it's certainly complementary again.
0: Yeah. And I guess I understand the the sort of lack of coverage specifically what for what you're doing. But I guess there's a lot of there's a lot of EO satellites flying um polar orbits for obvious reasons is that, so do you guys, Actually, need your own satellites, or could you host on somebody else's satellite?
1: So we tried it every which way. Um, that was a, a, at first we thought that we could actually uh, do it with one of the major constellations that it, that's up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're pretty excited because you know the last thing we want to do is have to invest in in running our own satellites, and, sure. and those are expensive. Um, they're not as expensive as, as as they used to be, but they're still it's still pretty uh, capital heavy, and there's uncertainty. But um, sadly for the pointing accuracy we needed, the distance between the satellites and the communications that we need. um, There's just not a constellation up there right now that satisfies those uh, criteria. So that's why we're um, building the first two with an eye towards adding uh, at least four more pairs. Um, We could certainly add more, but uh, 10 satellites, um, you know, again, they go in pairs. So five pairs of satellites is our plan for the moment and what we would love to do. Um, You know, and our, our goal is to just launch the first two, return our data product, Um, make any changes that we may need, and then the next uh, four pairs immediately. So it wouldn't be um, a slow growth. We would really want to add those pairs as fast as possible because the data product becomes so much more valuable with the frequency uh, of revisit time um, from two satellites to ten satellites. So uh, that's where we're trying to go with that.
0: Okay. And so what's your... What does your timeline look like? So the first two satellites, when when they're when are they supposed to go up, and then uh, how you go from there?
1: Well, hopefully with a little bit of luck. Um, we only need about uh, fourteen to eighteen months uh, from start to finish to build, launch, and start getting a data product back from our satellites. We're still trying to raise funds, um, and then from there we would be twelve to sixteen months out for launching the next um, next uh, four or five pairs. We might have a, a, a an additional pair, um, you know, just just in case, uh, at the ready. So it depends on how how things work out for that second launch. Gotcha.
0: And so you're fundraising right right now. How's that going?
1: We are raising right now. Uh, it's going pretty well. Uh, we had raised about. Five hundred thousand in seed money previously. Um, this is so we're a little bit of a strange company, in that NASA and DoD and uh, NOAA has already paid for the research aspect of it. There was more than a hundred million dollars invested from there um, to get us to where you know, we could commercialize. So we really only need um, you know six million dollars to get our first two satellites up and launched and ready. Um, even less than that if we just count the satellite part of it and not you know running everything else. Yeah, sure. So and right now we are actually raising on uh, Space Ventures, which is an online platform that allows um, small investments so that, uh, you know, companies can do big things. Um, So we've we've been pretty excited about that. That raise is going really well. It gets us uh, close to our goal of getting our first two satellites right into production um, which will save us a lot of time. If we can start now, um, you know, rather than a year from now or even a couple of months from now, we know that we can be ready to get on for a, for a rocket to launch a lot faster. So we're extremely close to that. We're really about less than $100,000 away from, from getting our first two satellites into production.
0: Terrific. And then, so if all goes well, kind of looking out a few years, um, where, where would you like the company? What do you think the company would look like in, I don't know, five or 10 years, what's your vision? Uh,
1: five years will transform the uh, face of weather. Um, every time I see a hurricane on TV, I will see uh, pictures from our satellites actually driving the coverage as well as the forecast of it. Uh, I'm excited about that because that saves lives. So those are earlier forecasts, you know, more reliable forecasts saves lives. Um, so that that's, that's number one. And the other thing I see is just transforming these industries uh, by giving them better tools to deal with uh, the climate crisis that's happening right now, Um, whether, you know, that's droughts, that's changes in weather that we just, you know, the historical weather um, models just aren't what they used to be for predicting what's going to happen in the future. So we want to bring some certainty to that and just reduce the costs that industries are, are, you know, absorbing right now due to weather
0: events. Is there, is there anything else in weather that you think where there's a gap? So um, I think I've noticed recently we had quite a few announcements of companies uh, wanting to put up microwave sounders. Um, so I, I guess the pro, the, the actual asarctic weather that I talked about, that's an example. But I think Spire also came out uh, recently, said we're going to do they're going to do microwave sounders. Is, is that something interesting as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. So microwave sounders, uh, the more of those, the better. Um, and hyperspec. I I have long um, been on the hyperspec train. I I would love to, if the company evolves uh, fast enough, that we could actually do our own hyperspec constellation. I think somebody has beaten us to the punch. There's a lot of hyperspecs um, that are going up. Uh, There are some already in in orbit, but there are constellations planned. Um, That's going to be huge for um, not just weather forecasting, but for some on-the-ground measurements that can then be put um, together with weather to help. Help you know again, like vegetation coverage is, is a big thing, and that affects what mining, sh- logging, shipping, uh, farming—you uh, know, just resources in general. Um, so, so that'll, that'll be huge to get that up there. And then weather is kind of like how do you manage those resources that goes on top of these kinds of hyperspec things. And then and the other thing that I would love to see is um, there's one satellite constellation now, but boy, methane emissions tracking—you uh, know—that yeah. goes into weather. Because you know, where did it come from uh, to, a, to a level that's precise and finding out where these emissions are coming from? Um, you know, I, I think that that would be a huge deal because emissions, a lot of times, you know, people think that companies just want to, you know, just admit willy nilly, uh, these oil companies don't care. They emissions actually cost them money, cost them hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Uh, If they have a leak or things like that. So I I think that the monitoring of methane emissions is going to be a a huge uh, application for, you know, for hopefully what we want to do, you know, saving lives and trying to trying to reduce the damage to the planet.
0: Yeah. And you're saying the, the the measuring of methane emissions that's that's currently a gap or it, it could be better
1: yes uh there, there's one satellite constellation now but um there's one or two in the works i, I believe um and, and i think that that's a huge gap for sure um and you know it, it's not like a a name and shame hey we know that this company's doing this and this company's yeah, doing that, yeah. but it really talks about um production reducing those leaks and also methane emissions—it's really kind of like a real-time monitor that's independently verified um, of what companies are producing um, in, in real time. So I think that that's really exciting to me. I think that you know I talk about stock trading a lot and and, and commodity trading because weather impacts that so much. Mm-hmm. But- Boy, if you combine weather, um, with this, this emissions and purpose as, as a product as a way of productivity, um, you'd really have an eye on the market to understanding what's happening uh, economically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of those greenhouse gases, um, is there a way that the data you will be producing, um, again, the vertical winds and all of that, like maybe the longitudinal data, is that going to be relevant useful for, um, climate change analysis?
1: It will be, uh, you know, and, and I'll, I'll, say that's a failing on my part, um, to understand the impact there, um, because it it, it seems like the the producers, for the most part, don't feel the impact of climate change as much as um, the people that aren't producing. Um, And our wind data will certainly unlock that a little bit. And um, I I don't think I will like what we find. Uh, you know, knowing know what I know already. but um I, I think that's going to be uh, it, it'll it'll be a powerful way to analyze that aspect of of things. Um, but, I, like I said, it, it's it's just the the producers aren't really feeling the impact as much uh, as what we know already. Um, and I, I think our wind data will prove that out to an even higher degree of um, you know certainty.
0: I just realized, um, I forgot to ask you at the beginning, you sort of mentioned at some point in time, you liked this project when you came to it, but how did you come to this project?
1: Uh, So a few years ago, uh, so I've been on the satellite bus manufacturing aspect of of it. Um, And when you're, you know, a manufacturer of satellite buses, the first thing you have to do is understand what's the business case of this satellite project um, or is there a business case? Because obviously if you're building one or two satellites, Um, that's a different price than if you're building 100 satellites and understanding if their business model can scale to you know 100 satellites whatever so these would come across my desk all the time things that i would have to quote things of that nature and this just happened to be one of them that, that came across my desk and i thought well, a lot of people are trying to do weather satellites, so you know I don't know that this is all that different, until I started talking to somebody that was actually putting up their own weather satellites, and they said, oh, no, you, you should go back to that, because this hurricane aspect is, is a real, it's a big deal in what they're doing. It's not sensor-based. Um, it's looking at the clouds, so th- there's they, they actually eliminate a lot of the problems that um, traditional measurements are, are going to um, have a hard time tackling, so they get there mm-hmm. a little bit quicker. So then I went back and I, I revisited it, and I started talking to the team a little bit more about what their, you know, what their vision was, how the technology worked, and learned more about it. And then I, I got involved. So that was nearly three years ago that I uh, came aboard.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm asking this because um, there's there's a couple of questions we always ask at the towards the end of the podcast, and so I'm going to ask you the first one now, which is basically if, if you weren't doing uh, tropical weather analytics, um, but you have obviously space background as you mentioned satellite integration, um, what else might you be doing in space, assuming that you think space in general is an exciting field to be in.
1: No, it definitely is. So I I got into space almost a decade ago because um, I was developing biophysics instruments um, and people were putting them up um in space and i said Ooh, i want to start going to these space conferences so it was really an excuse for me to start going to uh space conferences and seeing what was happening and the small satellite industry um you know drew me in immediately and I, i'd go back this is almost back in 2000-ish 2000, yeah. um that i started really getting interested in the small satellite when it was really just you know kind of starting so and to see some of these shows that kind of didn't exist or were so small you know grow is amazing so i would definitely been in space one way or the other, that this one just in particular, I I couldn't imagine ever having the chance to have so much of an impact with a satellite mission as this one. Um, because it takes so much money and so much time to get here. And that already happened, you know, that that already that part already occurred. So it was like, well, it's just a small satellite project that actually just leverages um, years of knowledge, hundreds of millions of dollars of funding, uh, mm-hmm. and they're ready to go. So that was that's what drew me to this particular project. But I would definitely be in space um, in some capacity on the satellite side uh, if it wasn't here.
0: On, on the satellite side being sort of satellite integration or specific payloads or...
1: Uh, Yeah, I I think I'm always interested in the payload. I I think that's maybe the biggest uh, thing is, you know, what's what's going to fly? What's new? It's just so interesting to me what people think up um, and then the applications that can flow from there. And then, you know, it happened to us. There are applications that you don't even know about until you start talking to certain segments uh, out there in in different industries. And then all of a sudden people tell you, you know, big things like, well, you know, forget about hurricanes, you know, just measure the polar vortex. Uh, Those winds aren't. Aren't, aren't my models um so i think it's really exciting for those i think that uh it's just a fusion of engineering and discovery and then it goes to space um it's just it, it's, it's it's exhilarating it's, it's really exciting when you think about it
0: yeah no for sure great okay final question we always ask is um is about science fiction and um you know do you like science fiction and if so any favorite science fiction it could be anything could be movie uh, TV series, books.
1: Well, I'm certainly a kid from the Star Wars uh, age, so that that obviously got me. Um in, into it first uh and then that always led when i was a kid it just wasn't you know now there's so many things available when i was a kid you had the, you know one star wars movie and then that was it for mm-hmm. a long time and then the other two maybe um so that led me to where's more of this and that led to you know star trek Isaac asimov which then led me to Carl Sagan um I, you know I, st- I still see those so those are some of my favorites for sure um and my introduction to it um th- those just still hold a, a certain place even though some of the content has gotten um slicker and nicer um it, those classic stuffs just kind of get me in a certain way I, and i i, I, I always uh, you know it feels like the original foundation is
0: part of it oh foundation is great but star wars you know that i think about it it seems honestly it seems like their weather prediction capability wasn't that great right i'm thinking there was like these like snowstorms on thoth and uh, they weren't really predicting it. And it was like sandstorms on Tatooine. Kind
1: of yeah. Hard. From a practical matter of things, so they could have used weather prediction a lot better. I, I don't think they use their assets as, as well.
0: <laughs> there you go. Well, on that note, Dan, thank you so much for being my guest today and, and best of luck with the rest of your race and and your, and launching your first two satellites.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so um, thank you. You know, I'll, I'll be excited to see how this comes out.
0: All right. Take care.
1: All right. Thanks. Good luck. <laughs>
0: And that's the wrap for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. Once more, if you enjoyed this, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platforms such as Apple or Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. You can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an interesting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. See you for the next episode.